episode 76, Space Law. Hello and welcome to AstroTalk UK. ATUK is a not-for-profit podcast produced by me, Gurbir Singh, amateur astronomer and writer based in the UK. I produce this podcast for my own education and share it as a free educational resource with anyone who has an interest. ATUK has no subscribers, ads, and you do not need to log in. For more information, please see the About page at www.astrotalkuk.org. One of the earliest characteristics of human civilization, that is, large populations living together in organized cities, was the creation of rules or laws that everyone who lived there agreed to abide by. The 50th anniversary of the first humans to visit the moon is celebrated later this year. In 1968, it was pretty much just two countries and a few space missions per year. Today, with over 70 countries having something in the way of a space program, along with a blossoming private space sector, space is likely to become very busy in the next decade or so. This surge of space activity will determine how the laws in space will apply and begin to set the scene for human civilization beyond Earth. On Earth, most nations follow international laws most of the time. International rules for operating space were defined by the United Nations in five treaties established between 1967 and 1984. They are the Outer Space Treaty, the Rescue Agreement, the Liability Agreement, the Convention on Registration of Objects Launched into Outer Space, and finally, the Moon Treaty. Links to the full text of these treaties and their other resources are available on astrotalkuk.org. How will these laws fare in space? For example, will all governments authorise and supervise their non-governmental entities in space? Comply with international liabilities for physical damage caused by their space objects? Agree on who can build what and where on the moon? Establish mining and ownership rights to materials on the moon and other celestial bodies? Maintain the principle of human rights in space. These are some of the questions I discuss with Bea Goswami, a doctoral student at the Institute of Air and Space Law, McGill University in Canada. A TEDx speaker, Bea has interest in space as well as law. And I started by asking him what came first. I think like everybody else, the interest in space came first, like the fascination with just looking up at the sky in like in early childhood days, definitely that was there. But that over the time became quite uh, dominant and then law took over. And then uh, there's this uh, competition called, um, yeah, it's, it's basically a mood code thing, like where a fake, a fake uh, cases given to you uh-huh. and it was about space it's, it's an international uh, competition and that really got me into space law and i was like oh this is fascinating and there's so much which is uh, 
which is to be interpreted, which is to be developed in space law. And that 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 element of uh, uncertainty, that element of being creative and interpreting law in a creative manner, it really got me into space law. And I've been I've been married to it almost <laughs> three years now, <laughs> four years rather. And did you have anything in the way of a telescope or binoculars? Did you do stargazing as a kid? Not not really. I was I, I as much as my family would have wanted me to be in science stream. I I took up science till like my high school, but then I. I could not really do maths that well, so I I was away from all the scientific gadgets. My dad is a chemistry professor, uh-huh. so, so he would have loved it if I pursued science or engineering or something in space. But unfortunately, no, I, I, I was a different kind of kid. Oh, okay. And, and you grew up uh, in India? In India, yes. But now you're, uh, you're in Canada, so just explain where you are and what you're doing. So I'm in Canada. I'm based in Montreal at the moment, and uh, so I came came to Montreal three years back to pursue my master's in space law. So McGill happens uh, McGill University, where I'm pursuing it, happens to be one of the only four, or at max five, one of the only five universities which is uh, giving a master's and advanced degree program in international space law. And McGill happens to be the best in that. So. Basically, that is pretty much which space law is pretty much which got me to Canada and Montreal, and so I'm I'm pursuing. I finished my master's last uh, last year, basically in August, and I right away started with my PhD in September 2017. So my master's degree was on uh, theorizing cosmic environmental laws, and it was more of a philosophical and environmentally ethical aspects to environmental law in space uh, so that was pretty much it and my PhD I'm, 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 I'm trying to look at fragmentation studies I wouldn't get into too much of law because <laughs> for obvious that's quite interesting so uh, <laughs> fragment fragmentation studies is that mm-hmm. uh, you tell us a little bit about what that is and what you hope to achieve in by the end of your PhD Sure. So I'll I'll start with very basic. So as as we progressed as a society, international society, the international law kept developing, and with the with with the evol- evolution of international law, we became. Uh, we are now standing in, in a situation where there are highly specialized regime like international environmental law is so specialized in itself. So the general body of international law is getting fragmented into different several pieces so there's one international environmental law there's aviation law there is uh, international humanitarian law there's human rights there are n number of regimes which are which are fragmented out if not out but fragmented in international law so i'm just really looking into how space law um, is, frag- is is a fragmented specialized regime in international law and what are the implications uh, in interpretation of law when these specialized regimes interact with itself. So, for example, the outer space uh, has too many applicable laws. Uh, to some point, international environmental law principles also apply to outer space. General international law also applies to outer space. And, of course, the uh, corpus juris specialis, as we call it, the outer space five treaties are specialized regime of uh, space law so when they interact with each other they, there's uh, there's at times overlap of jurisdiction or conflict in interpretation like both of the law apply together but there's a conflicting interpretation so I'm really looking into uh, 
either bringing about uh, suggestions which could harmonize the interpretation and basically governance, uh, improve the governance of outer space. Or maybe I would also possibly look into self-contained regime, which basically is, uh, I'll, I'll be very brief, basically is an uh, idea that uh, a specialized regime or a specialized body of international law can be developed in itself as an independent body of law without relying on general international principles or other other bodies of law, which would basically mean that space law would have its own environmental law, its own responsibility and liability regime and so on. Hmm, that, that sounds quite interesting and, and quite hard to do. <laughs> we have yeah. currently... You say it's become fragmented, but mm-hmm. the idea, the concept of international law has always been a little bit vague and ambiguous and um, both if any single body uh, that provides the uh, governance framework is the UN. Uh, is that what you have in mind in the future as a, a single international law that covers space? Would it be overseen by the UN? Uh, it's already been overseen by the UN. So uh, uh, the way it works in the international community, any law, any international law, is either developed through customs, which is uh, that uh, the countries already follow a set pattern and it develops into law, or they come together and they sit sit together and negotiate treaties, which which become become the international law. So outer space is already governed by the uh, international law, uh, which is. Uh, the outer space law becomes a part of international law and which basically pretty much is done under the uh, under the roof of the UN. Between 1967 and 1984, the five treaties that uh, govern what happens in space pretty much uh, were formulated and agreed upon. And I'll just summarize what they are and then we can talk about them specifically, if I may. Mm-hmm. So the... Uh, the main treaty called the Outer Space Treaty uh, mm-hmm. deals with the principles of what activities uh, states can undertake in space and it allows for the exploration and use of outer space including the moon and other celestial objects. So primarily space around the Earth, low Earth orbit and indeed going all the way up to geosynchronous orbit but also the moon and other celestial bodies, so the whole of the solar system Mm. and I guess in years to come it will extend beyond that but the other four agreements um, was the 1968, the Rescue Agreement which Mm -hmm. uh, deals with uh, an agreement on the rescue of astronauts uh, Mm -hmm. the return of astronauts uh, or indeed a return of objects launched into outer space. So if an astronaut or indeed a, a vehicle ends up, launched from one country, ends up in the jurisdiction of another, uh, mm-hmm. this law allows the repatriation. Next one is the liabilities agreement. And this is uh, pretty much the same thing that uh, anybody who has house or car insurance knows about. <laughs> it's just making sure that the liabilities associated with a launch are owned by the individual nations launching that uh, space vehicle. This next one to do with the Convention of Registration of Objects mm-hmm. launched into outer space, I think it's probably the, perhaps the neatest one. It, it just refers to having a, a, a spreadsheet somewhere that's looked after by the United Nations and every object that's launched into space 
has to be has to have an entry in that so that we all know exactly what's out there and approximate uh, details about what it is and where in Earth orbit mm-hmm. or wherever it might be. And then the final one, and I think this is the one that uh, is perhaps uh, the most interesting one in terms of uh, what will keep people in your profession busy in the next decade or two, <laughs> is the Moon Treaty. And uh, this treaty uh, governs the activities by states on the Moon and other celestial objects, and particularly uh, living on the Moon, mining the Moon, and so on. So let me go back to the Outer Space Treaty and ask you specifically, Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty requires that individual states to authorize and supervise all space activities conducted by non-government entities. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in Canada, if you wanted to set up your own space startup and launch uh, CubeSats into orbit from Montreal, say, (laughs) (laughs) um, then um, you would need to get the authorization from the Canadian government Mm -hmm. because the Canadian government ultimately will need to be um, legally responsible. Is that the kind of issue and things that are holding back the private sector developments, not just in Canada, but around the world? Uh, uh, well, let's just, let's just look at the broader perspective. So anything that is happening on Earth is rarely ever unregulated. It, everything that happens is is some there there is a nation or there's a government uh, governmental body which is regulating it so now space in international uh, international community uh, was recognized uh, while drafting of the outer space treaty as something ultra hazardous so anything that happens in space could have serious consequential effect uh, which not only are limited to the person or the entity that is conducting the activity, but could also result into a spillover and, uh, you know, uh, a harm to the right or right and access of space to other countries as well. So the Article 6 basically is uh, making the nation state, the the country responsible for all all that activity which is emanating from its own territory. There, there cannot be a situation where it is a non-state activity. It always would be a state activity irrespective of whether it is carried out. Is this what's holding back the private sector? I don't think so because uh, any activity in Earth, <laughs> if, if carried out by commercial entity as well, is regulated in, in a similar way it would be regulated in outer space. Uh, to, to what effect does it, uh, does the bureaucracy or does the governmental procedure, uh, you know, hinders the the uh, nascent or the new startups that are, that are popping up? It, I think it's a phase. It'll, it'll get out because things are growing growing and evolving at the moment and space is becoming uh, you know a new thing like in, in, especially in commercial perspective so I think it'll, it'll take some time and it differs from country to country USA is advanced in that way like in India is still holding back there, there isn't much commercial activity and you could you could always argue a case that it is the government policy and regulation which is holding Indian startups back uh, Indian space startups back but it, I think it's it's a phase it'll, it'll get over in future I'm sure it it won't be a hindrance in any sense, and 
I I don't see Article Six as being responsible to hold hold back private sector oh, any which way. Oh, okay, um, I think you you're right. It, it'll take some time before mm-hmm. this settles down. But in in a real sense, in a practical sense, because there haven't been private companies dealing with space launches or producing spacecraft in most of the countries. Mm-hmm. Most of the governments in these countries don't actually have the laws on their statute books. The, the local laws don't exist at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, isn't that also a factor in slowing down uh, the pace at which private industry can uh, can get engaged with uh, real uh, activities in space, commercial activities? Well, it- it, it it really depends on the perspective you look at, and I, I could argue from both the sides being lawyer. <laughs> so, yeah. At, at times, law is enabling. So, if if a government enacts a law, it could enable private startups to get into space industry. At times, it could be a hindrance as well because overregulation could always end up in lengthy procedures, getting uh, licenses, getting uh, regular, you know, getting permits and all those kind of things so you could argue either way but in practical terms uh, where where there exists no law uh, in any country on space or regulating uh, private space uh, industry i don't think there is a need as yet to regulate such law like even with india though there's a huge un cry about uh, uh, there not being a law, but I don't see that Indian space, uh, uh, at least the commercial or private pri- private uh, industry, has come to a stage where they require laws already. It is problematic to suggest that because I'm sure people who are in the industry who are very enthusiastic and zealous about uh, doing things in space and are finding it hard to hard to proceed with absence or ambiguity in regulation, but. That is how it happens everywhere. And from a law or legal or policy perspective, it's a phase. It'll get over when there is such need, when there is a boom in the market, the regulation would be in place. And I, I think it would be good enough to tackle such issues. And sometimes it is rather rather, rather more strategically uh, better to, you know, let things mature before you enact a law, because then you know what you are going to do with it. You could enact a law at the very nascent stage of industry and then you'd have to re-amend it and re-envision it, basically. So it is rather better to let things mature to Mm -hmm. a point. Okay, well, let me just put a specific example past you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's say uh, SpaceX launch uh, goes off track, it's a malfunction and crashes into an oil rig in the Atlantic and as a result, that is Scandinavian oil rig. As a result, there's a huge um, oil spill, uh, environmental cost to clean up. So <laughs> the cost of perhaps um, fatalities, the compensations for them, the loss of the oil rig platform, and the cleanup of that might arise. Who would pay for that? Would it be SpaceX or the U.S. government? So usually how it happens is such activities are insured already. So given that the insurance uh, amount runs pretty high, it, it should ought to be covered by the insurance. But in, in, in broader sense and in international law context, it would always be the country, the state, which would be f- at first primarily responsible in international community for any activity flowing from within its territory, like from 
within its territory, basically. So SpaceX being a U.S. Uh, governed company, the USA would be held liable and responsible for any uh, any damages that are flowing from its space activity. So once any company gets into space, let's say SpaceX, once it has it has launched a space object into orbit, it it in international law perspective, it kind of the responsibility directly pins to USA and the identity of SpaceX kind of blurs in the background because it would always be the US in the front who would be responsible. So in, in case of uh, SpaceX satellite going down and, uh, you know, there's oil spillage in, in the ocean or something like that, it would be primarily the US's responsibility to uh, uh, repair it, basically mm. the damages. Right, but in the um, way of um, offloading the obligations... The oh, they could all, yeah... They like the US could always go back to the SpaceX uh, mm-hmm. company and and ask for like oh, now that we have paid for you or they would always work it out. It's not that uh, th- there's no ambiguity in that sense. Well, yes, but I'm assuming that it would be done beforehand. So when it comes to the government's uh, obligations to authorize and supervise, they would mm-hmm. line that up, uh, sign that up as an agreement with any private space operator before they. Uh, conducted any space activities of course of course so uh, a huge part of uh, government licenses and authorization and supervisation basically involves that what uh, what happens when you know such liability flows and are you insured enough to conduct such activities if the insurance covers physical damages in outer space and or uh, on 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 the earth so that basically forms a huge part of such uh, licenses so even countries like India, which doesn't have a, a sophisticated private sector uh, commercial space uh, act- actors at the moment, mm-hmm. private commercial operator could start and could be adequately authorized and supervised by the government if the government said, okay, get yourself insured and then we will authorize and supervise you and then we've ticked the box in terms of meeting the treaty obligations. Of course, in future, yes. At the moment, uh, the very authorization and supervision, which is basically issuing of licenses, like government licenses to operate, like uh, licenses issued to private entities to operate anything in outer space, flows from a law. And that law in India at at present is missing. They have come up with a recent bill. which is kind of good. It is it is progress in a in a way, but it needs quite a lot of tweaks at the moment. So once that law comes in place, the government of India or, or the state would have the necessary uh, law to authorize and supervise private acti- activities in space. So yes, upcoming definitely. <laughs> yes, that's why it's such an interesting area. Yeah. <laughs> okay. If I move on to Article Seven of the mm-hmm. Outer Space Treaty. And that says it commits a launching state to international liabilities for physical damage caused by its space objects. Hmm? The complex international agreements behind space missions these days, you know, you get spacecraft built by one nation, launched by another, unoperated by a third. This is going to be quite a complex and unclear legal obligation. Have you come across any case laws, it's early days, but any examples where this kind of things helped understand how this might pan out in the coming years? 
this does sound to non-lawyers, especially to non-space lawyers, as a, a complex legal problem. But if, like, people, uh, like especially space lawyers, have sat down and tried to break every possible way, uh-huh. and it is not not that difficult to ascertain who is the launching state and who would be responsible. Like, if you if you work out, especially with the liability convention, Article One, Two, Three, and Article Seven of the Outer Space Treaty, of course. So once you do that, that you can always ascertain who the launching state is and who would be responsible basically for international liability. Have there been case laws? Not really, but recently I'm sure you're aware uh, India launched a US uh, satellite uh, by, by a space startup, uh, I think Swambi or something like that, mm-hmm. and which was not authorized or cleared for launch by the FCC itself. So there, there are uh, problems which are popping up, but uh, there hasn't been really any case where uh, it could be pro- like uh, it could be seen that a space uh, a space object is launched from other nation and operated by somebody else and is belongs to somebody else. Uh, the, the launching state as a as a concept can be ascertained at all times and it. It, it pretty much governs uh, the international liability regime which follows for physical damages caused by space objects. Just going Definitely. back to this example you gave, this mm-hmm. this one, um, this Swarm Technologies, a US company, it's quite mm-hmm. a new one, uh, it's launching, uh, I think, four very small satellites to do with uh, Internet of Things communication technology. Mm-hmm. And it's because they were quite small that there was an issue with them getting their... Uh, FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, license to operate mm-hmm. them. And in, as, it, as it happened, I think, as you said, the, they were launched earlier this year by a PSLV launcher in India, and it got mm-hmm. to orbit, but the FCC denied them the permission to use the frequencies and, and communicate. So do mm-hmm. you know what happened in that case? Were they fined? I understand, first of all, that the the satellites, although they made it to orbit, were never switched on. Is that right? Do you know? Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not up to date whether they they were switched on or whether they are operable at the moment or they are op- being operated. I do know the official position uh, which the ISRO took. Uh, as per their agreement, it basically was that the... Uh, the person or the entity which is seeking a commercial launch is required to get all the clearances from their end. Their end, basically, so Swarm Technologies would have to have uh, gone through the clearances of US, which it did not, and maybe it did not disclose to uh, disclose it to ISRO. And such uh, this this definitely is a kind of legal complexity in a way because. Uh, ideally, in 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 an ideal world, India should have sought out if they have if they've gotten all the clearances or not. But uh, moving forward, I think uh, ISRO would have learned a lesson in a way that <laughs> they would be more careful. But I don't see it as a as a legal problem for now. I'm, I'm sure they, like within the US, they would have had a se- severe uh, consequence. Maybe their license, like uh, the, the company would have failed uh, licenses issues or something like that. I'm not up to date whether they were uh, allowed to operate on the frequency or not. I'm not really sure about that. Hmm. Just, just two other points on this before we move on. Mm-hmm. Um, you're quite right. I think Israel was, was fine. They, they didn't come into the crossfire for any sanctions as a result. Um, yep. I think the, uh, there was a, a third 
party who arranged the the launch on behalf of Swarm Technology. So the uh, the bottom line was it was uh, Swarm who would need to have been uh, mm-hmm. responsible for. As a non-lawyer, it's the only thing that I'm aware of where there appears to have been a law broken. And I'm just wondering if, from a legal perspective, Swarm Technologies were sanctioned in any way by the FCC. I am not really sure what happened in like in between the transaction between FCC and the Swarm Technologies, but I'm sure they would have faced uh, they would have or they're about to face serious consequences uh-huh. because ideally what what happens is they made uh, like in international law perspective they made the US a launching state as well because US procured the launch in that way. Right. So a, a launching state is defined as a state who launches the satellite, which would be India, and a state who also procures the launching of a satellite, which is the U.S., because they procured the launching. So in case where, where the FCC being the U.S. Uh, governmental body, where it did not authorize its entity to launch the satellite, and we have a situation where they became a launching state because of a company going rogue. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, I'm pretty sure that they would have taken it truly very seriously and they, have, they would have come down quite heavily or they're about to come down quite heavily <laughs> on the uh, and, and I'm not exactly sure about whether there already have been any ramifications for the company. Yeah, and it is still early days, although a launch was yeah. in January. It, sometimes these things take a long time. Um, yeah. On the same theme, it, it's interesting... Um, in this case, it was the Federal Communications Commission, which is within the U.S., mm-hmm. and grounds for revoking this permission was the satellites were too small, and there's a potential risk of uh, collisions in space and sp- space debris. The, the, the satellites were so small they couldn't really be monitored by the um, monitoring um, current monitoring technology that's in place. Mm-hmm. So, if that company had it gone somewhere else um, in another country and come under the legal jurisdiction of a non-US company where the laws would be different, the same technology perhaps legally would have been allowed. Mm-hmm. Could that happen? Is that really what you're looking at in your PhD, the way that the laws throughout the um, throughout internationally are fragmented? Not really. That that is not really what I'm looking at in my PhD. I'm looking at fragmentation in international law and not domestic laws as such. Mm. But uh, if I understand your question correctly, you're saying that if the country moved its its headquarters and base to another other other country and started its operation there, so well it depends. If if it's only a branching out and the jurisdiction like the organizations mind and soul remains in the US and it's just the operations that are being carried, let's say, in the UK and then UK launches a satellite. Uh, it would still be a US uh, company in that sense, but it, it really depends on how it plays out, how they are uh, basically establishing the company and under what jurisdiction. If they start from scratch, if they go to UK, if they start from scratch, they establish a new company, but with the same objective of launching uh, CubeSats or TinySats, and they got the approval from the UK, uh, 
well it basically depends on uh, the threshold a state nation state sets for itself so us has high standards for uh, what can be launched into satellite which is kind of a good thing maybe india does not have maybe indonesia would not have something something like that and they would allow any kind of satellite to launch which could potentially be a threat to accessibility of space because they becoming uh, with they becoming space debris or having a collision uh, with other satellites so it basically depends how a nation state uh, sets uh, its own threshold to what it can or cannot launch so it in a way it, it kind of is uh, is 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 good that uh, the us has higher thresholds for what can go into space because we can already see space is really getting very congested and contested in in every sense and and that's really all i was getting at uh, what mm-hmm. uh, might be uh, unsafe for the us um could be considered safe and be launched by another country and that's mm-hmm. how international law is at the moment mm-hmm. uh well that is true in a sense uh but it it could be argued differently mm-hmm. because it, the international law especially the outer space treaty sets uh, sets uh, relatively really higher obligation that every every nation state whether spacefaring or not at the moment has to have equitable access to space right and they should have the exact uh, ideally they should have the, the a similar kind of access which the early spacefaring nations have uh, so let's say tomorrow uh, a really uh, a country which is not in space at all at the moment uh, decides to get in, become a spacefaring nation they should have the same access as us had in the us in in the early 1960s or russia had in the early 1960s so really that is the kind of uh, threshold that the outer space treaty sets uh, in terms of international law but what what boils down to domestic laws depends on what 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 uh, threshold individual countries want to set in while interpreting outer space treaty so outer space treaty has really high threshold but you can you cannot do this you cannot do that but you can like outer space treaty is more enabling law as such but though it still has prohibitions but uh, while enacting domestic laws in in consonance with the outer space treaty it really depends on the nation state to set uh, limits for itself as to what is the quality check what is the quantity check if one may say so yeah so it's going to be a bit like uh, earth and the environmental problems uh, exactly exactly that there. yeah yeah that, that 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 does sound like a very similar corollary uh, between space and uh, particularly if you talk about the debris problem every state could have potentially its own threshold limits as to <laughs> what can be launched or what can be launched the problem uh, at international law at the moment is the outer space treaty though a phenomenal instrument uh, really visionary instrument uh, draft back in 1950 1960s it is turning out to be uh, uh, in in a sense being contested in ma- very many ways if you see space mining issues or uh, if you see space debris issue moving forward i think international community would once again would have to come together and define and decide new laws which uh, directly relate to the realities of today and in that sense we we would we would set new thresholds to what can be done in outer space or what cannot be done and similarly the domestic laws would then follow from the new international legal instrument 
to move on to the next item, it's Article 12. Now, this is something which I'm particularly interested in, and I'm hoping you can help me understand this. Um, so, just to repeat, this was the um, Outer Space Treaty, 1967, two years before uh, Apollo 11, and it was anticipated that within the, at that time that... Uh, will be bases on the moon colonizing Mars and the outer planets perhaps as well by now, 50 years on. However, Article 12 talks about installations, equipment and space vehicles on the moon being protected. If they belong to one nation, they should be open for visits by another based on reciprocity. Through this treaty, visitors from one moon base would be entitled to go into another. If you think about how much of a mess we make here on on the Earth, um, mm-hmm. do you think legally that kind of um, framework set in stone in the Outer Space Treaty is workable on the Moon in years to come? So yes, I'll, I'll start uh, with what you said in the beginning. So colonization of other celestial bodies, well, that truly wasn't the vision objective or uh, a goal uh while drafting the Outer Space Treaty. The Outer Space Treaty was basically uh, being drafted in a, in a sense, especially during the Cold War era, uh, in a sense that outer space becomes the domain of uh, cooperation, uh, becomes the domain of peaceful uh, cooperation and all nations come together and identify outer space as uh, something which would benefit all of humanity. So that being the background of the Outer Space Treaty, the Arctic, Article 12 really fits quite well in that sense because they're envisioning outer space to be uh, a domain of cooperation. So, and and on the other hand, Outer Space Treaty also was in in in, in many of its aspects, especially uh, in the latter 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 half of the Outer Space Treaty uh, after Article 10 or Article 11. I'm, I'm assuming that they envision that these are scientific experiments which are going on, and because it's a cooperative international activity, the freedom, uh, the free, uh, the free flow of knowledge would be uh, would be something which would be aimed at, and that is why, on the basis of reciprocity, it is it is aimed that. Uh, you know, nation states would have access to each other's uh, installations, equipment, or space vehicles on the moon or other celestial bodies. But really, uh, in in a sense, I think the perspective you are looking at it from to have moon bases uh, that truly isn't the objective of the Outer Space Treaty or should be the objective because if we do that, we are basically starting the process of colonization, appropriation yet again. And we all know through history where it has led us, how it has developed disparity in terms of the world we live in. When we're going through this exploratory pioneering phase, the noble ideals of the Outer Space Treaty are well-founded and and it probably will be implemented. A few decades after that, the kind of uh, fighting over um, pieces of land and region that we've seen here on Earth, maybe I'm just being pessimistic, but it's inevitable that we'll take our messy ways all the way up to the moon and beyond as well. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I hope not, but uh, being a pessimist and almost... (laughs) 
it it might also be called a trollist it it might turn out that way and it's, it's a really sad situation <laughs> i'm glad that somebody younger like you is a bit more optimistic than me that's terrific okay so if i move on to um other area i wanted to look at and mm-hmm. this is specifically to do with the moon treaty it's quite a few years ago uh, many countries essentially uh, settled and put bases up in parts of Antarctica just so that they mm-hmm. would have uh, a foothold. And if you remember in the very first spacecraft from India to mm-hmm. go to the moon had a, a lunar impact probe which carried with it an Indian flag. And that uh, was for a lot of the individuals in India saying, yep, India's got their flag on the lunar surface, so we've got a claim on it as well. So again, mm-hmm. I'm being very pessimistic, but that's how uh, history uh, seems to pan out. Specifically, I talked to you about Article 3 of the Moon Treaty, mm-hmm. um, which explicitly prohibits nuclear weapons in space and on the mm-hmm. moon and lunar orbit, but does allow for the use of military personnel participating in scientific research. So mm-hmm. from a lawyer's perspective, Mm-hmm. That sounds a bit ambiguous, doesn't it? Uh, it really is not. It is It is really very clear what you can and cannot do on the moon and in the outer space. So uh, I would I'd break it down and I'd make it really simple. So uh, basically what's being talked about is that on the celestial bodies, all, all the celestial bodies, whether it be moon, Mars, or any other celestial bodies, except for the Earth, I guess, <laughs> they are to remain exclusively peaceful which would mean that no no military installation a weapon of any kind it could be non-nuclear weapon as well of any kind is prohibited on celestial bodies except earth <laughs> there is a two-tier arrangement here so in in the outer space which would be in orbit you could place weapons which are not nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destru- destruction but weapons of any other kind it could be a laser weapon it could be a kinetic impact weapon or it could be basically anything which is just not nuclear weapon or weapon of mass destruction but on the moon and other celestial bodies you cannot have any kind of weapons whatsoever or uh, military installation but military personnel participating in scientific research are allowed which basically means that they're carrying out peaceful activity and it is not a military objective which they are trying to achieve. Well, it was just the explicit inclusion of the word military personnel. Um, Many of the Apollo astronauts, certainly, Mm -hmm. um, pretty much all of them were originally part of the either American Air Force or the Navy. But when they went to space, they, they became civilians. What I'm getting at is, as you know, in the on Earth, every military nuclear program has started off with at least on the uh, ostensibly on the basis that it's a civil nuclear energy program and from mm-hmm. that has evolved the military program and mm-hmm. by having this reference to military personnel on the moon engaged in scientific research to me mm-hmm. it's just a way of saying yes it's just a military project but couched in uh, uh, in a scientific research, a bit like uh, what Japan has been uh, accused of many years of doing whale research when really when, to, to mm-hmm. get around the whaling restrictions. Mm-hmm. I think instead of uh, 
it being dubious i think it's rather more clear because i i believe back then when when these instruments were being drafted most of the astronauts were military personnel and in international in international perspective if you look at it if any state let's say us sends an astronaut to the moon and if the other states are looking at it and if that that person is a military personnel it could raise questions as to what the activities are being conducted so it is i think in in order to avoid those those kind of questions and that suspicion that it is a military activity it 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 is the moon agreement and the outer space treaty i believe also is coming out clearly and stating military personnel participating in scientific research is not a military objective and it is it shouldn't raise any suspicions but uh if it is if it is carrying out any non peaceful or uh, you know any military objective kind kind of uh, experiments or or doing anything of that sort it would be problematic and it is prohibited in that sense so i think it is made, making it more clear rather than uh, ambiguous in that sense it's it's, it's interesting <laughs> again maybe i'm a pessimist but anybody uh-huh. who would want to set up a military project on the moon would claim that it be a scientific one and that's how they would get around it and this reference to military personnel is a vehicle mm-hmm. that uh, would allow them to do it Okay, if I move on to Article 7 that uh, mm-hmm. requires that states operating the moon shall maintain the existing balance in its environment mm-hmm. so uh, to avoid harmful contamination. Now, as a lawyer, you will know that when it comes to deciphering the exact meaning of a law, meaning of the words are critical. So, mm-hmm. existing balance Uh, and harmful contamination—they're going to be uh-huh. argued until the cows come home. Do, do you see this as a potential um, difficulty for um, lawyers in the future to unpick? I haven't really dug into the drafting history of our space treaty, but was basically, uh, or at least influenced by scientists, and it was not really drafted by lawyers or uh, you know diplomats as such. So, Article Nine of the Outer Space Treaty bas- uh, basically says that harmful contamination should be avoided in use and exploration of outer space. But there, there was a lot of ambiguity in Article Nine itself, and it was very limited in scope. Article 7 Moon Treaty which followed the Outer Space Treaty years later it basically is a step forward it is basically is a leap forward towards the unknown and trying to protect the unknown so now that we do not know like even with with the environmental crisis on earth we do not know for so many years that there could be ozone layer which could get disrupted it only started uh, i guess in late uh, or early 1900s that is the exact reason why a word balance or existing balance appears in article 7 because they do not know what is to be protected article 8 uh, asserts that states that launch spacecraft and personnel shall retain jurisdiction and control over any personnel mm-hmm. examples from uh, uh, from here on earth during the cold war there were many mm-hmm. cases where particularly during international events like uh, olympics when the competitors from one nation whilst in in another country would defect mm-hmm. uh, for one reason or another allowed those individuals to escape the regime that uh, they wanted to escape from this article 7 seems to be saying that if you are launched into space by a particular nation then that nation 
can maintains jurisdiction and control over you. Um, would that potentially be a conflict with the UN's human rights of the individual? I don't see how, because uh, this kind of is basically uh, a restatement of, uh, in a way, a restatement and, and furtherance of Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty, where basically it's saying that anything happening in outer space, whether being done by a person or whether it is being done by a space object, would actually remain under the jurisdiction and control of uh, of, of the nation state which has launched or procured the launching so but i i can't imagine in a way how it would conflict with uh, the un's declaration on human rights uh, uh, to best of my knowledge I, I i really can't picture a conflict between human rights declaration and retaining of jurisdiction and control in our space like imagine the scenario mm-hmm. um it's um i don't know a um, hundred years from now We've got moon bases, mm-hmm. one from Russia, one from America, and American astronauts have launched from the U.S. to the lunar mm-hmm. base, mm-hmm. and uh, she gets there. She lives in the U.S. lunar base for uh, a couple of weeks. She goes to visit a Russian lunar base, and then she decides to defect. So it's her human right to defect. She can she maybe feels threatened under her current environment but she feels safe now that she's in a Russian lunar base and she mm-hmm. perhaps want to become a, a Russian citizen under this law the US could say no no we launched her she's ours hand her back 100 years from now I'm sure the law would have evolved to a uh, very different stage but we so it's really not a good comparison of comparing current law with 100 years from now but uh, Hypothetically, so if 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 the stagnancy in law continues for 100 years and such such uh, situation has to come, I think states would be very strategically aware as to not not launch their astronauts from other territory if it comes to that. So they would they would they would try to control retaining jurisdiction over uh, any personnel they want to send into outer space. So. The, the situation where Russia sends the astronaut to US to be launched, I don't think they would let it happen from the very beginning instead of having a conflict in outer space. Generally speaking, if you stand back from the treaties now, they've been around for, in the case of the Outer Space Treaty, 50 years. Most of the con- although the Moon Agreement, only a few countries have signed up. Or, um, mm-hmm. In fact, if you could help me with some wording. Um, when uh, treaty is the end product, of the UN resolution, people vote on it, becomes a principle, then it becomes a treaty, and then individual countries have to sign it, ratify it, and accession it before mm-hmm. it comes to implementation. What does, um, what's the difference between ratifying and accession? So, Bob, exactly. So, accession comes, uh, I'll tell you the three stages. First okay. is signing of a treaty. Uh-huh. So, once Actually, let me start a step before. So you said resolutions become treaty. That is not how it works. Resolutions stand independent. That Those are what are called soft laws. And a treaty is called hard laws. So soft laws, basically the General Assembly resolutions. But would a not... treaty always start off with a resolution? Not necessarily. Right. It could okay. just start off as negotiation and they could directly okay. become. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, but in most cases, because uh, usually there is a built up towards the treaty, so General Assembly resolutions do 
precede treaty but it's not a requirement for a treaty to become treaty that it needs to have a preceding okay. resolution mm-hmm. so coming back to uh, how a treaty treaties uh, formed so basically nations come together they send diplomats everybody negotiates and drafts to like drafts the wording of the treaty they agree to a format and that is where most of the nations sign the treaty now most of the countries do have a uh, two stage process because uh, like if india signs a treaty it does not legally become binding directly as such it has some time to go back and enact laws domestically to comply with the treaty obligations so once it has done that it can ratify the treaty and saying that we have complied with the international obligations by either adjusting or enacting new domestic laws so signing is a pre stage to ratification the so signing is only that we morally in broader sense accept the obligations under the treaty though that signing is not legally binding you are just saying that okay i agree to the principle morally and everything looks fine but ratification is what makes you obligated under the treaty to follow that law so ratification is the final step and this ratification One, require agreement within the host nations parliament exactly so us- more than usually the most of the majority states have uh, a system where they go back to the country go, they go back to their own country they develop or amend the existing laws which would be in compliance with the international obligation uh, presented in the treaty and that is when they ratify the treaty basically so it's it's a two stage process so once now they have ratified the treaty it would become a legally binding instrument for that country and accession comes at a later stage so now our space treaty is already existing instrument and 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 a country who has uh, which has not participated in negotiation or drafting of the outer space treaty but now accepts that outer space treaty is important to carry out its own interests it would accede to the treaty okay. right so, so. In, in india ratified the outer space treaty back when it was open for ratification now the period of ratification has closed and the treaty has come into effect now any nation which is wanting to accept obligations as detailed in the outer space treaty would accede to the treaty given the time where we're at talking about uh, commercialization phase that we're going through are there any countries that may feel that they need to just abandon the outer space treaty because they can no longer comply and fulfill their national commercial objectives uh, mm-hmm. if they stay stay in well it's <laughs> a very interesting question in a nutshell is, is anybody trying to abandon it i don't think so it wouldn't be wise for anybody to abandon outer space treaty because the treaty is not pro- as much prohibitive as it is enabling it's an it truly is an enabling treaty it enables states to uh, states to to do things it's not prohibitive it is not prescriptive it is not uh, restrictive in any sense so it's a very uh, uh, how may i call it it's, it's not a very clean game so what us did with uh, enacting its uh, own space commercial activity bill uh, enabling com- commercial entities to go and extract space resources and commercially benefit from it so that is kind of not allowed in outer space treaty in any any interpretation but they have their own interpretation which keeps fluctuating fluctuating between now this is this and they interpret tomorrow in different sense so what they started 
enacting that law is uh, in international law something called state practice so what state practice is if all the states starts uh, start enacting laws which are contrary let's say contrary to outer space treaty principles it would become a state practice right and state practice is is recognized as something which aids to the development of law mm-hmm. so they are not coming to the international community and saying hey we uh in in next 20 or 30 years we we have a possibility of mining or extracting space resources let's uh let's make an international instrument uh which would you know regulate such activities what they did was they enacted domestic laws and now norway as i think norway or luxembourg uh, one of the countries uh uh followed the pursuit and they enacted their own uh space mining act and if the states start doing that and it becomes state practice it would be contrary to the principles uh, which are laid down in the outer space treaty uh, the us um, sets the standard by showing how it can be commercially viable and still stay with inside the treaty the outer space treaty then other nations will follow likely and that that could be a potential problem for interpretation of outer space treaty though at present outer space treaty is really very clear that no commercial utilization could follow without having anything being appropriated so once appropriation is prohibited by the outer space treaty how can you commercially benefit from any <laughs> any extracted mine resources so yeah that's, that's uh, really funny how they interpret it and i think over the next well within the next few years i suspect that uh, will be clarified through some actual activity and and the law will evo- emerge as a result of that i uh, yeah I haven't deliberately set out to talk about dark subjects but I want to turn to one more dark subject on on this. Um mm-hmm. I was interested in your TED talk that you mentioned um mm-hmm. the nuclear high altitude nuclear tests in space. Not many people mm-hmm. know that uh, in addition to um remote islands and underwater and underground nuclear tests mm-hmm. in the early 60s there were quite a few nuclear tests uh, conducted in space mm-hmm. and given the um particularly the ASAT testing that has been taking place mm-hmm. primarily by US China and Russia um strategically a lot of uh, nations especially America now see mm-hmm. space as a theater for war just like air sea and surface uh, we've been conducting wars uh, here for years is war in space do you think inevitable i don't think it is inevitable i think it is definitely inevitable it it basically is i would quote my professor professor ram jaku he always says any action in outer space or any action anywhere is inevitable it is the humans who are controlling any anything <laughs> if we stick to the spirit of the outer space treaty it was basically to uh establish space as a domain of peaceful cooperation and if we just stick to that just just do that bit we we would go long way i i truly hope wish and i truly believe that space war is inevitable and that is uh, that is something we are working at mcgill uh, every day like i'm i'm part of uh, the milamos project the michael manuel on international law applicable to military uses of outer space so where we are basically tackling the issues where 
not not war but what happens when military activities are uh, being conducted in outer space there's some ambiguity about uh, laws applicable to military uses in outer space and we are working very hard every day it is a uh, tremendous team of international experts world's best experts and uh, <laughs> create a very authoritative text as to what exactly is the law and it is a, it is a phenomenal project which is being undertaken here at McGill in collaboration with many other uh, world renowned universities and i think it 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 would truly define very many things in the coming future and i hope it would uh, contribute to sustainability and peaceful uses of outer space as such bea goswami thank you mm-hmm. very much indeed for your time really appreciate this Thank you so much for having me and I look forward to uh, more such collaborations and I truly look forward to reading your book.